Welcome to St. Peter's Fireside. My name is Phil Pearson, and I'm a guest speaker, a returning speaker, or something like that. It's good to talk to people. The past number of times I've preached here at St. Pete's was just staring right at you on your couch. So now people will actually laugh instead of Rob and I just making a long, awkward eye contact. So welcome. It's, it's so good to be here to have response and to join into this series. Today I have the weight, the task, the joy to end the Exile Wilderness series that we have been walking through as a community. And, and I've loved this kind of journey as we've been coming out of exile, following the Hebrew people as they have been coming out of exile. And Lloyd and Preston have done this incredible job of exploring who God is to the Hebrew people as they're leaving slavery, as they're leaving Egypt, as they're headed towards the promised land. And one of the things I love most about the book of Exodus, it is a book exploring who God is to a group of people who literally don't know who he is yet. And he's constantly showing a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Well, of course, one of the interesting things about the book of Exodus is that God acts strangely. He does very confusing and shocking things, both to the ancient ears of the readers, but especially to our modern ears. And to a certain extent, you could say that the God of Exodus, the God of Scripture, often acts ungodlike. I mean, of course, there are moments that paint the picture of who we would kind of expect, right? There are moments where there is a terrible and menacing cloud at the top of a mountain, a booming voice that instills fear, a pillar of fire leading people through the desert. There are moments where there is gentleness, silence, and intimacy. But then he shows up in a burning bush in the middle of nowhere. He picks kings or priests to speak on his behalf. He shows up in a pillar of smoke to lead this tiny random nation out of slavery. And then ultimately it culminates in a baby being born in the backwater town and dying on a cross. A number of weeks ago, Lloyd in his sermon, he kept saying something. It stuck with me because I think it encapsulated everything I want to say today. Lloyd in his great accent would keep saying about God's action, well, you know, it's not how I would do it. It's not what I would do. <laughs> and I kept hearing that, and I kept saying it to myself, being completely obsessed with Lloyd's accent, it's not how I would do it. And it's true. The, the way God reveals himself in Scripture is strange. I mean, we believe he is the God of the universe, the creator of all that we see and know, and yet He's a little strange in his actions. He acts in uncharacteristic ways. But I think it's intentional. I'm convinced his actions, the way he chooses to reveal himself, is extremely intentional. And so what I want to do today as we walk through this text one more time is keep on asking the question, why? Why would God choose to act this way? Why would he choose to reveal himself this way? Because, yes, it's not how I would do it if I was the creator of the universe, but there's got to be something there then. So we're going to walk through this text check chunk by chunk and keep on asking that question. Why would God reveal himself this way? How does that sound? Oh, my gosh, feedback. This is incredible. So um, a bit of context for the passage that we're in. This takes place, Exodus 33, which is directly after what Preston had preached on last week. 
basically the culmination of the book of Exodus, this group of people, Israel, was trapped in slavery. God comes and says he's going to lead them out of Israel, takes them, or out of Egypt, takes them out of Egypt, out of slavery, through the Red Sea, toward the promised land. And the relationship between Israel and God is very interesting. They don't really know what it is. It's a real will-they-won't-they, they, a, a Ross and Rachel situation for those of us that still remember what that thing is. And then finally, God and Israel, DTR. They define the relationship. God says he will be their God. Israel says they will be his people. Moses goes up the mountain, gets the Ten Commandments, and then on the way back down, it's not going well. Um, they've built this golden idol that they're worshiping at the feet of. It's basically Mardi Gras going on at the base of Mount Sinai, and God is angry. Moses is angry. If you want more context, just go listen back to Preston's sermon last week. But so that's where this picks up, right after this moment, this anger that kind of Moses has displaced. So let's dive right in. But, but before we do that, let's pray one more time. Father God, we thank you that you reveal yourself, that you choose to show who you are in Scripture and nature and as we interact with one another. And I, I ask that as we explore this text today, we come to know and understand you better, but ultimately that it leads us to connect to you more. In your name, amen. So, beginning of Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. Go to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give to your descendants. I will send an angel before you to send away, um, to drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you. So God is speaking with Moses, or rather speaking at Moses, and he is angry. I mean, you can read it right in the text, right? Look at all those you statements he uses. Leave this place, you and the people you brought out. I will not go with you. You are a stiff-necked people. I will decide what to do with you. I might destroy you. And like I said, this is distressing language, both to the Israelites, but especially to our, our 21st century ears. It's, it's horrifying, right? Is God actually going to destroy them? Is this really God, what God is like? And why doesn't he know what he'll do? And one shocking thing here is the amount of dissociative language that God uses towards Israel. Throughout the entire book of Exodus, God has taken all the credit for bringing Israel out of Egypt. But then he says, you brought these people out of Egypt. Fully takes his hands off. To me, this is like God being a parent. And it's like a parent that is telling the other parent through the kids how mad he is. Go tell your mother that we're going to the grocery store is probably something often that was said in my family in a frustrated way. And it's this I'm not even, I'm not there, I'm giving up, my hands are off. So why would God, the sovereign signal caller of the universe, the creator of all that we see and know, choose to reveal himself with such anger and, and even to a certain extent, such pettiness in his language? Why would he act this way? Well, let me ask you a different question. What makes you most angry? 
Where does your anger come from? Now, there's regular things, like my wife hates when I chew, um, and she will stare daggers at me as I absentmindedly eat dinner. But the things that really make us angry, that really grind us, are most often the things that we care the most about and the things that we love. When people act in ways that we don't want, especially our loved ones, it hurts. It causes us pain. And that pain, that hurt, can often easily lead to anger. Anger usually comes from a place of love, albeit often misguided. Anger comes when we feel hurt or slighted, and especially about the things that we care about the most. So let me posit a different emotion for God. I don't think he's angry. I think he's hurt. He's frustrated. He feels betrayed. He and the Hebrew people had promised themselves to one another. They were to be priests to the entire nations, but before it even hits the road, it ends. God's salvation plan for the world is dead on arrival at the very feet of the mountain that it started at. This marriage that they have created is falling apart. So again, let me ask, what does this reveal about God? Well, maybe it reveals that he cares, that he cares how people react, that what people do, he allows to affect him. He is not a God far off, but he is a God close that allows us people to hurt him, to betray him, even when he loves. And he allows himself to be seen angry because of that. But we have much more, so let's keep on going. Um, Exodus 33, 7 to 11. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went into the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance of their tent, watching Moses until he entered the tent. And as Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. And whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance of their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one who speaks to a friend. This seems completely a turning on left field. First, God is angry, and then suddenly this moment. Almost all the commentators that I read here, they called this moment an interlude. A little pause in the story. God shows his anger, and then there's this middle part. Why? What's going on here? Well, it's kind of a wink and a nod. Because God is saying, that's it, I'm done with you, I'm giving up, my hands are washed clean of you, you'll get the promised land, and that's it. We're done. But he's saying it right outside the camp. He said this, yet Moses is still setting up the tent. God is still coming and having a conversation. The people worship because God hasn't left yet. You could say that Israel is in the doghouse, but... God's not gone yet. It's this little smidgen of hope, a light at the end of the tunnel. God's saying one thing, but his actions might be pointing to something a little bit different. And all this happens, people worship because God hasn't abandoned us. But anyways, back to the conversation, the theophany between God and Moses. 
oh, well, actually, I'm jumping ahead of myself. I love the line, and the Lord would speak to Moses as face to face. This anthropomorphic language, right? No explanation of what this looks like, but God and Moses are speaking like friends. And it's highlighting kind of Moses' special place in this interaction. It's not a vision. It's not anything like that. It's a voice. It's a conversation going back and forth. So how does God want us to see us? Well, not powerful, not mighty, not shaking mountains, but here outside the camp, not giving up. So uh, we're moving forward. I'm sorry that I jumped back and forth there. Exodus 33, 12 to 13. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name. I have found, you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, Teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this is your nation. These are your people. Moses goes on the defense here. He knocks back against God's you statements with his own. And he's angry just like God is. You have been telling me. You have not let me know. You have said you know me by name. If you are pleased with me. And then the final knockback. Oh, not an attacking you, but a reminder of possession, of connection. Remember, these are your people. I swear, if this was a musical like Hamilton, which I hope all of you have seen, this would be a rap battle between God and Moses. And at the end, Moses would drop the mic and walk away. The whole air in the crowd would drop and everyone would look to God and be like, what's your response now? And God's response is surprising. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Moses goes toe-to-toe with God, and in a surprising way, he wins. God relents. He says, my presence will go with you. And, And really, that's all it took to convince God, the creator of the universe, to relent his anger, to relent his frustration, to change his mind. I mean, to quote Lloyd, It's not what I would do. But here's the thing. God actually doesn't fully change his mind. In the English, it looks like he does. But in the Hebrew, it's a singular you that God says in response. He says to Moses individually, I will give you rest. I will be with you. But in the Hebrew translate, or in the Hebrew translation, it's singular, it's not plural. My iPad just did something super weird. So God relents, but only half so. So God responds, my presence will go with you, but it's singular. So then Moses doesn't give up. He says, if your presence does not go with us, Do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do this very thing because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Here God fully relents. He changes his mind. I will do the very thing you have asked. 
To me, that's so wild. It's something that I don't even want to over-explain or rationalize, but simply allow us to sit with. Because remember what I said at the beginning. I'm convinced that God is concerned with how we see him. And in this text, it would seem that God wants us to see him as someone that is willing to change his mind, someone unsure of his choices. In the first section, God says, I don't know if I'll destroy you. And then in this part, Moses changes God's mind from his anger. In the Christian faith, we believe in a God that is unchanging, yet changes. Why would God, the force beyond the universe, the creator of all that is, allow himself to be revealed this way? Or could it be he wants to be seen as affected by us? Could it be that he allows us to shift him? Peter ends in his book, the, uh, the Bible Tells Me So, says that the text and others like it are a defense of why we pray because our prayers affect God. He says this, seeing God as a character in the story who can be talked to, reasoned with, shows regret, finds things out, changes his mind, can be troubling because it doesn't sound much like the sovereign signal caller of the universe. But this ungodlike God of the Bible gets at the very heart of both the Jewish and Christian beliefs about God. This God doesn't keep his distance embraces the human experience, becomes part of the story. But we have one more piece, and this part blows my mind. Then Moses said, show me your glory. Moses is on this hot streak. I mean, can you even imagine going toe-to-toe with God and then changing your mind? What do you do at the end? Take a victory lap? He does. He says, that's it. I've won. Show me your glory. What is glory. I mean, we say it all the time in church, but do we fully reflect on its meaning? The word glory from the ancient Hebrew is the word kavod, and it's most often attributed to God, but we can understand its meanings in kind of when it's used in some curious cases. In the book of Judges, there's this story of Ehud and Eglon. Ehud means left-handed, and Eglon means round. And Ehud is sent to kill Eglon. And Eglon at one point is described as being kaved, kaved. He is, and the reason it's repeated is because the Hebrew language doesn't have the word very, so they just repeat it for emphasis. Which also, side note, helps us to understand the children's game, Hungry, Hungry Hippos. It's a Hebrew mistranslation. It's supposed to be very hungry hippos, guys. You've been saying it wrong for years. But Eglon is described as being kaved, kaved, glorious, glorious. What it means is he's heavy, heavy, heavy. Eglon, the round one, is massive. His glory is too much. It falls over the hilt of the sword that Ehud stabs him with. Kavod means weight, fullness, power, magnificence. It's huge. You could think of it as the light coming off the sun. Here, thousands of miles away, we can still feel the heat of it. And Moses is saying to God, show me all of your power. Fully reveal yourself to me. Hold nothing back. And I love God's response here. The Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But you cannot see my face. 
because no one can see me and live. God says no. I won't show you those parts of myself, but instead I'll show you something else. I missed this so many times on the first number of times I read through it. I kept thinking, yep, God's going to show the glory. God's going to show the glory, but he's not. He's going to show his goodness. Because seeing the glory would be like seeing the sun up close. It would be too much for us. God can't or won't show his glory to us because it would destroy us. But instead, God wants to show his goodness. A wildly important distinction because glory is power. It's strength. It's weight. It's heavy. But what is goodness? Goodness is beauty. It's gentleness, it's intimacy, it's, it's delicate. God, in trying to reveal himself to Moses, trying to reveal what type of God he is, does he say, I'm powerful, I'm awe-inspiring, I'm fearsome, I'm benevolent? No. Are those truths about him? Well, yes, we believe they are. But he says, I'm good. I know you by name. I am compassionate. I'm convinced that he whispers it. It reminds me of Elijah when he, inter- when he encounters God. It says this in 1 Kings, Then a, powerful and gr- a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of a cave. Or this goodness, it reminds me of Jesus being made in the form of a baby. Gentle, delicate, easy to break. Or it reminds me of dying a criminal's death on a cross. Giving up all power, all glory, all magnificence. Why? To show goodness. God, in revealing himself to Moses, seems to not simply want to be seen as glorious, though that is, of course, part of who he is. But instead, he wants to be seen as good. I tried so hard to think of a different metaphor, of a different quote, but, I mean, you got to go with the, tr- the tide, trusted and true. C.S. Lewis in Narnia says this. Susan, speaking to Mr. Beaver about Aslan, says, Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. But he's good. So what does this mean for us 2,000 years later? Well, I see two major pieces. First of all, when you think about God, what do you think of? Do you think of a force beyond the universe, so great, so mighty, holy, glorious, and untouchable, uncaring and unaffected by us? Do you think of a face beyond the clouds that is unknowable and completely separated? Or do you see a close and intimate love. I have to admit, I struggle with this often. The picture of God gets so clouded. I went to school for theology, and it felt like God became so much more distant, so much more abstract, a frog that you dissect. So lately, my prayer has been this. God, 
show me your goodness instead of your glory. The longer I've become a Christian, the longer I've sat in this, the less I'm concerned with God's otherness. And the more I'm in awe of his closeness. Because God isn't out there unaffected. He wants to reveal himself as close. He's pleased with you and he knows your name. And second, this is for us as a community. If the church is meant to be the presence of God here on earth, if we are meant to bring God to all those around us, are we doing it in the way God would? Are we trying to show God's power, his magnificence, his glory, his otherness? Or are we trying to show his goodness, his patience, his gentleness, his nearness, his love? Because remember, when God chose to fully reveal himself to us, it was not in power, not in glory, not in thunder or in lightning or in fire, but a small, helpless baby born in a backwater town. How does God want us to reveal himself to the people around us? Again, we might say to ourselves, well, it's not how I would do it. And you're right, it's not. But apparently, it's how God does it. And we are invited into that dance. Apparently, this gentle, delicate approach is how God wants to reveal himself. Let me pray.